It's August 12th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa. First up, we'll hear about two upcoming events. Eric Pape from Civil Beat is here to tell us about the Future of News event, sponsored by the Hawaii Society of Business Professionals. Then Cindy Matsuki is back from the High Tech Development Corporation, and she'll tell us about the next Wetware Wednesday. And finally, for the rest of the, of the hour, we'll get the full story behind Project Imua. Students from various Hawaii community colleges collaborated to put a payload into space. What did it take to get to this morning's successful rocket launch? And what's next? Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet as well after the break. Well, we'll get right into our news guests. And, of course, joining us here in the studio is Eric Papen. He's from Civil Beat, and he's here to tell us about the upcoming Future of News event. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you very much. Now, you know, we are a couple of... Uh, Wannabe journalists? Well, yeah, that, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you filled that in because, you know, I was kind of searching. Um, and we've covered the, the the changing environment for news and, and journalism and, and how do people consume their news. In fact, we've had whole shows devoted to this. And when this uh, event popped up on my radar called The Future of News, I wanted to have somebody come on and... Tell me, what is the future of news? So Eric, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but um, you know, maybe start off slowly by telling us, what is this panel that has been put together, and what do you intend to tackle, I guess, with uh, this discussion about the future of news? Well, the Hawaii Society of Business Professionals asked me to be one of three people who are going to talk about the future of news, each from our different perspectives. Um, as you may know, there's Rick Blanjardi of Hawaii News Now, there's Gina Mangieri of KHON and myself. I'm the deputy editor over at Civil Beat, where I focus on innovation and special projects. But I also spend a lot of time writing about the high cost of living. Mm. And it's been a great space to explore the future of news, because the future of news, no one really knows where it's going to be in, in, in 10 years. The entire industry is, is questioning, which kind of makes it into a very exciting space to be in. It's a great time to be innovating because you can try out a lot of different things. A lot of things end up falling by the wayside. But we do see trends and we do see uh, opportunities. The question in many cases is how do you fund that? Mm -hmm. But we'll be talking about some of those things. We'll be talking about social media and how social media is altering and shifting the landscape. How do we journalists uh, interact with the people who are reading, listening, and watching? How do we learn from them? How do we look at the data that is about them and about us and about everyone around us. Um, data is a huge part of where journalism seems to be going right now. Data journalism, yeah. Data mm -hmm. journalism. There's another element which is where, um, how do you make difficult and complicated stories, stories that aren't cat videos, stories that <laughs> aren't the easy stuff, um, into really compelling storytelling, really compelling exciting, interesting, and relevant to people's daily lives. There's so much information that people have now, thanks to the internet, or because of the internet, because it's not always thanks, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that a lot of the future of journalism and the present is increasingly going in this direction, is moving toward uh, making sense of it. It's, it's actually not saying, here's all of the information in the world. It's saying, here's what you really need to know. Here, we're boiling it down. We're looking at the data. We're boiling that down. And then we're going to tell you a great and powerful story. And mm -hmm. so, and so the, th those are some of the key ways um, that things seem to be moving forward. There's all kinds of issues around the details when it comes to the, the social media and when it comes to the finance. Right. I mean, I know you only have an hour, and there are three guests with great insights. So I can't imagine how you're possibly going to be able to cover such a wide-ranging and, and very you know timely and I think still uh, f bubbling topic. I mean, we 
talk about the the future of news, civil beat was is actually still one of the major parts of that conversation, not just for Hawaii, but outside of Hawaii with Eric, uh, with uh, Pierre Midyard's investment in it and Pierre News and, and trying to find different models that might work. Um, I think that, you know, people, the civil beat is doing, filling a, a space that people didn't even know was a space to be filled, but doing such a great job of it and talking about difficult topics from homelessness to the 30 meter telescope, a platform for community voices, as well as hard news coverage. So uh, maybe I could tap you for some of what you might share. Uh, I know that when we first learned about civil beat and its model and attempt for uh, journalism and civic journalism funded by readers and in that respect, going with a paywall, that is still something that even much larger and more established news organizations are struggling with. Is a paywall the future of news? Um, I tend to, this is my personal opinion, but I tend to think that uh, paywalls are not the future of news. Uh, Paywalls work in some cases. They they help bring in some money. Some money is better than no money for publications that need to survive. But if you're looking to have an impact in a community, this could be locally, statewide, nationwide, or, or beyond, you need to be read. You need to be listened to. You need to be watched. And if you don't have that, you're creating more exclusive information. So the question is whether people are willing in 2015 or in the future to pay for that information. In my, in my personal experience, people tend to pay for information somewhat gladly when they think it's going to help them to earn more in, more money. So it's, they look at it as an investment. If you read uh, very, very good economic news that's giving you sort of intelligence to invest your money, you feel like that's an investment. But people who used to pay for magazines that had celebrities on them don't want to pay for that anymore. People who used to pay for a wide range of publications do not do that. Now, people who look at sort of um, tech and science magazines are in many cases still doing quite well. Why is that? I think a lot of those people, in addition to, be intellectually, in, in addition to being intellectually stimulated, feel like it helps them to get more for their money it, when, they, when they buy their gadgets right, or right. their equipment or their tools. But I, th- I think that that's often a line. Now, you can't have a paywall if the price is low enough that people say, you know what, I guess I will pay. I guess I won't just find another website and get it for free. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> you know, with the panelists that you just described, I mean, the uh, the television news landscape is pretty well re- uh, represented there. Uh, Civil Beat is there. Uh, there's no representative from, let's say, the, the daily paper, Star Advertiser. Uh, but I would be interested to hear your response. If somebody were to ask uh, you as part of the panel, aside from the, the the media outlets that are represented on this panel, what do you think are some of the other channels by which Hawaii news consumers might be looking for local news? What are some of the other channels they're looking for local news? Well, obviously, a lot of people do go to the Star Advertiser. Um, if you look nationwide, newspapers are really under a lot of economic pressure. Right. The, the economic model generally just doesn't work anymore. Um, the, the value of the real estate of advertising on those print pages has declined, and no one has found a way. You, you can do extreme things to chase readership, but it doesn't usually end up paying off because you end up sort of debasing your brand. Um, here, I'm, I'm under the impression that, that the Star Advertiser does fairly well economically still. Um, but th- those pressures, they're like a whipping sheet that go around different parts of the country. They hit different cities, regions, and and now national publications. Mm -hmm. Years Mm -hmm. ago, I heard uh, Bill Keller of the New York Times speaking um, to graduate students in journalism in Berkeley, and he was basically bragging that the New York Times had never had layoffs, substantial layoffs. And so he he was feeling that they were above 
the rest of the the, the newspaper world. Mm-hmm. And he thought that the New York Times, as he was saying at the time, would go in and fill a lot of those gaps around the country where local and regional press were really struggling. But the economic model that doesn't work for those other publications doesn't work for the New York Times right, either. Right. Mm-hmm. So somebody said, but didn't you just have a round of layoffs? He said, yeah, but they're the first ones in 100 years. And everyone in the audience was, was all journalists and many experienced ones in addition to the students. They sort of laughed darkly because they knew it's not that you're immune to it. It's that it's just reaching you. The whipping sheet right. has to mm-hmm, get up to the mm-hmm, most elite publications. Mm-hmm. So so it's, it's not really good for anyone to be cocky about the finances of it. It's a big challenge. You have to be very dedicated and committed to the sort of fourth estate, the, the higher calling of what journalism is, if you want to do the meaningful stuff. And if you want to do the less meaningful stuff, my attitude is you should probably leave journalism because you can make a lot more money <laughs> doing that elsewhere. And I know a lot of people who've made that uh, choice. Well, um, with uh, the representation from everybody else, is there one takeaway that you plan to really want to get into everyone's heads, That the, a message that you hope that people will walk away from, from Eric's point of view, to have made their participation in the, in the panel luncheon worthwhile? I think that journalism needs to be exciting. It needs to be fun. It needs to be dynamic. It, and it needs to connect with people's lives. So a big part of that is storytelling or recounting how things are meaningful why they're meaningful in a way that is engaging. And if it's not, you're, face, you're, you're just tripling your challenges. So it's worth the time to be creative and to be dynamic and to, and to look forward. So I see, it, I see the future of journalism in a very dynamic, um, a dynamic and engaging way that I'm excited to be a part of. That said, it may not be for everyone. If you're looking for a you know, stable job, it, <laughs> it's, not, it's not what it used to be. It's not a clear path forward. Um, you have to jump around a lot. You have to be very flexible-minded. Now, you mentioned uh, social media, and of course, uh, you know, Ryan and I are both uh, very active participants in, in social media. As a, as a place to consume news, though, uh, if you wanted to find out about, let's say, the issues with homelessness or the issues with uh, TMT or you know, any, any issue that has some substantive uh, knowledge base that's out there, does social media really serve that purpose and, and Will it ever be the source of of good sort of news, uh, in-depth reporting that would perhaps replace anything that exists now, whether it's TV, newspaper, or radio? Um, It's not a source of in-depth reporting. It's a channel to information, just like everything else. So you can use social media. I use this all the time as part of our cost of living series. It, it, It allows me to to see comments by people that I can read between the lines, and I say, oh, there's an interesting story there. I can instantly contact that person. Um, that happens on our website. It happens on our Facebook pages. We have a special cost of living group where I already know people are, are very engaged on the topic of the you know, Hawaii's crazy cost of living. So those people are open to talking to. It facilitates everything and it improves the quality of my work because I can cast a much uh, broader net much faster. I, c- I can test ideas before I publish them. Mm-hmm. Um, I can get ideas from people and say, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to explore that. So whether I'm doing traditional reports, whether I'm doing analyses, writing columns, um, or going very, very deep, I can reach out to all those people. So it's, it's a channel of interaction. Mm-hmm. And if you harness that, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, it's a big change from the traditions of journalism. A lot of people aren't used to that sort of easy flow. Right. Someone can comment on your story. Mm-hmm. Five seconds after it goes up, maybe they only read the headline and they're mm-hmm. already insulting you. You, <laughs> you have to develop a thick skin for that stuff. Mm-hmm. But what you do is you let the, some stuff wash over you and you say, what's useful and productive here? And what can I channel back? Just like social media is a channel, what can I channel back to readers, listeners, or viewers? 
to help them to move forward and, and to get a better understanding of the, of the world around them. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, we've only scratched the surface, and certainly, again, it sounds like it'll be a very deep and probably colorful conversation. So if somebody wants to attend the Future of News luncheon, uh, what day and uh, where can they find more information? They can find more information. They can find more information on Facebook. They can type in the future of news. I imagine their Facebook search will take them to <laughs> the future of news in Hawaii. The event's August 20th, 12 to one thirty. It's a lunch. If you go to that website, you can actually click through and buy tickets, and then you can come to the Hawaii Prince Hotel Waikiki and Golf Club and join us. Fantastic. Sounds good. And, if, of course, we'll also put a link up on our show notes to uh, – uh, for anybody who wants to check that out later on uh, this evening. So thanks, uh, Eric, for joining us. It's my pleasure. And, of course, uh, now joining us here in the studio is Cindy Matsuki, and she's here from the High Tech Development Corporation to tell us about this coming Wetware Wednesday event. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so, of course, this is a monthly recurring event, and every month, we, you know, it's like, wow, there's always something happening over there at HTDC and and this month, you are tackling something called light manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Is that? Well, tell me what exactly that is. Well, I've looked up the definition of light manufacturing, and it involves taking. It's, so it's different from regular industry where you don't have as intense products. You take almost you take some refined products and put them together and add value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even weight-wise, they say light manufacturing is specifically like literally light. Mm. So it's lighter products right, but it's more like value. It's not like setting up a, a steel manufacturing. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so it includes like fashion mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. things like technology, mm-hmm. smaller items. And so it's perfect for Hawaii. I was about to say, does that work? I mean, certainly no one's going to be opening a auto plant in Hawaii anytime <laughs> soon. But light manufacturing sounds like something that could have a role in Hawaii's diversification of business. So from mm-hmm. HDC's point of view and from what you're going to be showcasing at this upcoming Wetware Wednesday, uh, what is that landscape for light manufacturing in Hawaii? Well, we are partnering up with the Chamber of Commerce, and they've started a manufacturing initiative where they're bringing t- together all the manufacturing companies in Hawaii. A lot of them include food manufacturers, um, And so we're working with them, and they wanted to actually launch a networking event for their manufacturing group. And so since we already have this monthly event where we bring a lot of people together, they thought, oh, maybe we can kick off our networking event with you, with Wetware Wednesday. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's how we got together. So we're helping them kind of kick off their own networking event, and we thought it'd be good to bring different industries in to meet the software developers. Um, and I thought it would be a good venue for people to start solving problems. So you're Hopefully. you're actually kind of mixing the crowd with <clears throat> uh, the element of light manufacturing as well as uh, bringing the uh, developers into the mix. Are you looking for some kind of uh, interaction to take place that might perhaps come up with some new ideas or some brainstorming that might uh, uh, influence? Maybe the process by which light manufacturing proceeds? I hope so. I hope so. So last month, we actually had a foodware Wednesday where we bought, we brought in the food industry, the food manufacturing industry. So <clears throat> the thought was that they could talk about 
what the issues they're facing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and pose that to the software developers as challenges so that is, they could potentially solve. Is this a trend that we're seeing? So there have been many Wetware Wednesdays folks specifically on the software industry, the startup industry, and now you're kind of saying, hey, there should be a blankware Wednesday for these other <laughs> industries in Hawaii. So you did food manufacturing, and I'd imagine they were kicking, hoping to kick off their sort of series. Exactly. Now you're doing um, manufacturing uh, uh, Wednesday to, to help them. Mm-hmm. To, does this continue? Will there be tourism wear Wednesday? And, and I would like, like to. I would like to. So we're trying to get together with the retail industry, tourism industry, ag. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. because our view now of technology is that it's actually in all industries. It's not just high tech anymore. It Technology can help improve all different industries. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that's what we're trying to accomplish is bringing together these different industries with the software developer community that comes together at Wetware Wednesdays. So the underlying commonality across all the wetware would be the, the developer community. Yes. And what you're trying to do is introduce them to other aspects of uh, you know various, uh, um, let's say, technology mm-hmm. sectors that mm-hmm. might be involved you know, with, with uh, HTDC. Yes. Well, the entrepreneur promoter in me mm-hmm. wants to see the software de- developers looking for problems that they could solve with customers that are already there. And they're saying, this is a problem I have, and I would pay for a solution. Yeah, so a light manufacturing uh, company in Hawaii might say, oh, you have this facility, and it does this and does that. You know, it's really pay- it's a big pain to, to, to do this. And someone would say, hey, well, if you have an Arduino and, you know, some, some of this code Raspberry and that Pi. code, Raspberry Pi, we could solve exactly, that problem. and with- get it automated. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so describe perhaps the format that Wetware might employ to get people to connect with each other, besides the fact that everybody's going to have a beer in their hand. <laughs> and they're all in the same <laughs> That <way>. always <laughs> helps, right? <laughs> right. So it, it is a free event, and it's open to a lot of university students. So speaking of university, this, this event is going to be sponsored by the University of Hawaii College of Engineering. So Dean Crouch will be there, and mm-hmm, he'll be talking mm-hmm. about what their college is doing in the light manufacturing area. Um, and we will also have like an open mic and we'll ask people to come up and talk about some of their projects and maybe some of the challenges that they're facing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we even have people who are looking for people, looking for software developers, and they're welcome to come up and let us know. Fantastic. So if someone was interested in either the software development side or the light manufacturing side of this uh, peanut butter chocolate mixing of deliciousness of mines, I don't think I did that well, uh, <laughs> where can they go for more information? You can find out more information at wetware.eventbrite.com. And you can also register. It's a free event. It's going to be at Holo Holo Bar and Grill on August 26th, Wednesday. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Cindy, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And, of course, uh, we'll take a short break now. And when we return, we'll be joined by Joe Ciotti, Elena Barber, and Deborah Pei. And uh, we're going to be... Talking about Project Imua and what's unique about this program. Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation about this space mission with community college students. So you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And we're live here in the studio, so you can tweet us your questions as well. You can reach us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Award-winning slack key artist Stephen Inglis embraces the wider world of Americana music in his recent release, Learning You by Heart. Listen closely to his original Roots-based tunes, and you'll still hear slack key beating in time. Stephen Inglis, Learning You by Heart in concert, Saturday, August 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at hprtickets.org 
or call 955-8821 during HPR Business Hours. Every weekday afternoon, take a pause after fresh air for a walk through a Hawaiian forest. Listen for the call of the palila bird, smell the scent of sandalwood, and watch out for that invasive fountain grass. Christopher Phillips hosts this 13-week HPR series, Mahalo Aina. We'll get a guided tour of the many benefits provided by our island forests and the work being done to protect and preserve these diverse ecosystems. Join him as we give back to the forest with HPR's Mahalo Aina. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Joe Ciotti, Elena Barber, and Deborah Pei. And Joe is the professor of physics and astronomy and mathematics, and he's also the director for the Center of Aerospace Education and the Hokulani Imaginarium over at Windward Community College. Elena Barber is from Windward Community College and the lead student on Windward Community College's team for housing design, interaction, and static testing. Deborah Pei is from Honolulu Community College and was the lead student on that community college's team for power, telemetry, and engineering experiments. And, of course, I would like to know how you guys divvied up all these responsibilities and, and of course, overcome the challenges of collaborating remotely because as we get into the details, everybody's really coming from a different place. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments and questions, and that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu and 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Welcome, everybody, to Bite Marks Cafe. It's great being here. Thank you. Well, Hi. Joe, you know, that was cute. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a little voice. She said hi. Joe, you know, we'll start with you, and uh, I, I am glad to have you uh, join us again. And, you know, we, we've been sort of following this project, and I think it's been uh, kind of on the schedule, and I think it got delayed a couple times. But um, I would like to know, starting off, how did this project even come to light because it seems so difficult to, you know, there were a lot of universities that had teams that were all pretty much self-contained in one area. But uh, this proposal, which actually sought out different community college students across the Hawaiian Islands to get involved, I mean, that in and of itself, uh, to, to collaborate remotely to build a technical let's say, payload like this. I mean, it seems like a, a, a daunting challenge. I mean, give us a little background on how this idea was born. Sure. The, the, uh, the, actually, the, the linkage that joins the four community colleges together, and that's Honolulu, Kauai, Kapiolani, and Windward, is Hawaii Space Grant Consortium. Mm-hmm. We're all affiliated with this particular consortium. Each state has one consortium, and the consortium then it allows to have a variety of affiliates. And we decided as, as a group to write a grant, a NASA grant, a very competitive grant. It's a two-year, $500,000 grant mm-hmm. to bring the four community colleges together because each one has strengths, and we wanted to capitalize on those strengths. And, and by doing that, we would create a, a, an affiliation or a consortium of our own community colleges to develop uh, payloads for, for space launch. This is something that we have we really wanted to do for many years. We tried it uh, several years ago 
uh, with two community colleges, and then we took the leap with four. And as you said, that's very daunting, very challenging to communicate with four different groups, especially with one on an outer island. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, Joe, it almost sounds like you were trying to make it harder for yourself. I mean, were any of the other schools, the universities participating, this is, hey, it's not just one campus. Let's get six campuses in our proposal. Or were we really blazing a trail here? In, in a way, we are. Um, when when we got on to our first telecom with, with NASA, uh, very, very challenging. Uh, there are six telecons that you have to go through, and you have to pass each one to continue on to the next phase. The first question they asked us was, how are you going to coordinate mm -hmm. and communicate with such a big group? Because they had never done that before. Oh, good, because uh, you know, that's <laughs> exactly the same question we're going to ask you. Absolutely. Now, you know, just to give... Uh, our listeners, uh, a perspective of, of why this is a timely discussion. The part of the team, and we have a couple of uh, representatives, uh, Deb and Elena here, but part of the team uh, you know, is on the mainland participating in a launch that took place early this morning at Around about midnight. midnight. Yeah. Uh, and there was a, um, a rocket launch in the Wallops flight facility. Uh, it was actually delayed. I mean, I think there was a delay a couple times, but it was supposed to take off on the 11th, right, which is a, you know, like yesterday. Uh, but that was delayed because of weather. And so then the launch window opened up at uh, midnight last night. Well, midnight our time. It was like 6 o'clock uh, over there. And so it's actually happening right now. And, and maybe uh, I could ask you, maybe we'll start with Deb. What what did you stay up and watch? I mean, how was uh, how was that experience? Unfortunately, I fell asleep <laughs> <laughs> before I got to see it. But I did get to see um, another launch while I was in Wallops in June. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay. Much like this one. And Elena, how about you? Were you able to fight that and to, to to harness some insomnia to watch the launch live? Bert was trying to watch it live. Yeah, I was awake. Good. So I was able to see how the launch went. I was also up at Wallops in June, so I had already seen like one like it, but it was just cool to see yours. You know, I saw someone else's rocket get launched in mm -hmm, June, but mm -hmm. like to see yours get launched was really cool. I saw a little bit of footage from the UH system that they'd put on video of the, the rocket going up and the students mm -hmm. celebrating. Was yeah. there a secret back channel where you were giving each other virtual high fives in a chat room somewhere. I mean, I really want to feel, understand what that experience is like, even though you were very far apart, because this is something you would worked for for such a long time. Yeah, well, um, I was actually talking with uh, my friend who I actually brought onto the internship with me. So he was all like, oh, it's launching in 15 minutes. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll watch it, <laughs> and even though I was super tired. But, um, yeah, it was just really cool. I was like, how was it? And he's like, it was amazing, blah, blah, blah. And you hear all of them. Like, I even saw the videos that my um, colleagues you would say, were, took and they put it on Facebook and um, they're all like yel yelping and uh -huh, screaming uh -huh. and everything. It was really cool. Now, how did the, I, I'd like to know a little bit of background story on how did you each get involved with this project? Uh, I, I know, I know, Deb, you're at, you're at Honolulu Community College, right? Yes. And so, who was it at, at, at the Honolulu Community College that tapped you on the shoulder? I would imagine at Joe's at Windward and and Elena, you would, you know, see Joe and Joe would corral a bunch of Windward students together. But what's happening on the other uh, 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 campuses? Well, we also um, have an affiliation with the Hawaii Space Grants Consortium. And the director at uh, 
Honolulu CC, Greg Wideman. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew me from some other projects that I had done, and he was like, hey, there's this Project Amua thing happening. Did you want to join? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just jumped on it. It sounded really fun. Mm-hmm. And and uh, was it uh, consistent with, uh, you know, a let's say, curriculum that you were studying? Were you sort of in uh, a pre-engineering or, or sciences kind of a track? Yeah, yeah. I was taking um, all the pre-engineering um, requirements at Honolulu Community College at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I figured this would be a great thing to put on my resume later when I go to apply for engineering jobs. Mm. Wow, that's good. I never thought of resumes when I was in high school. <laughs> I mean, uh, college. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, can you tell us about the particular component? Because what is, I think, fascinating about this project is each community college had a specialty, a talent, a strength, uh, as Joe mentioned. So what was it from your campus? Well, we specialized in um, the power systems because the voltage coming in from the rocket was at 28 volts. And we needed to drop that down to five. Mm-hmm. So we decided to create a power and signal conditioning board. Um, we also had um, Kapiolani helping with us, helping um, that later to make the printed circuit board. But we were trying to help pick out the components and seeing how they would wire together and test them all out. And so along with the power systems, we also had the photosensor array to help us figure out um, how the rocket was facing towards the sun. And we also did a small data logger, an onboard data logger, so that we wouldn't have to depend solely on the telemetry data that the rocket was taking. Mm-hmm. And we don't have our own little hard copy. Mm-hmm. So did you, uh, did you both kind of get started a couple of years ago? I mean, what's the timing for your involvement? Um, well, for my involvement, actually, it was last fall semester. My kind of in the middle of the semester, my teacher, Dr. Jacob Hudson, he was my physics teacher, mm-hmm. and he, I guess, he thought I was a good student from the other class because he actually just saw me like at the coffee shop at our school, and he was like, "Hey, do you want to like do a project like this?" And he's always so into it. it looks good on your resume. It looks good on your <laughs> resume. <Great>. So. <laughs> He really sold it for me because I wasn't really interested. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to, you know, jump right into it because it seems kind of scary and daunting for me. But, yeah, so I actually I emailed Dr. Ciotti and I just all I said was, um, I'm interested and I want to know more information about the project. And he's all like, okay, thank you. Welcome to the team. Come to our meetings on Saturday. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm in now. <laughs> so it was really cool. I kind of got swept up into it. And yeah, and I was also, I'm also declared myself as pre-engineering. So. Mm. Oh, good, good. Yeah. So so where uh, where Deb was working on power systems, uh, you were working on sort of the the housing design. We weren't actually working on the housing design, but actually the integration of all of the components together. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Kauai had the whole um, design of the spectrometer and the housing, and they actually made the housing with um, one of their partners. Like they had a friend who had, who was able to do it. They had a connection, and um, but since everyone was working on different campuses and they're all doing their own thing, we actually never we didn't know if it was going to work together, mm. basically. Yeah, was there was there a, a, a project chart, some kind of a Gantt <laughs> chart or some kind of <laughs> timeline layout? That you better believe it. <laughs> I saw what Joe so we, had, we, we had a Gantt chart which uh, assigned uh, the different parts of the project to the different campuses. 
And we, we quickly looked at the Gantt chart and noticed that sometimes things were out of alignment. And that was very helpful to make sure we were back into step, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. when you're dealing with f- uh, four different campuses, uh, with uh, four different responsibilities. Uh, so that, that was really important for us to do. Uh, th- we were making full use of social media in a variety of things. We were using uh, Google's Drive to communicate. Uh, we have a variety of teleconferences, phone calls, face-to-face uh, meetings. I, I think what was really neat about this for the students, and I think they can confirm this, is that they follow the same protocols that NASA engineers follow, um, that their subcontractors have to follow. Uh, there are basically six steps that you go through when you first propose your, your design. Then you have to show that your design is workable. And then you go into another step where you show that you've got all the components and then you test them out and then you integrate them. Mm -hmm. And they followed this protocol just like any engineer did. And I think that's one of the neat things that they gained as an experience, something you can't teach in a classroom. Well, this protocol that you're describing, that's not, not something that you, uh, you know, inherently know <laughs> as a student. Who, who, who taught that class? Who, who provided the structure uh, upon which this protocol was based? I mean, was it, was it you you're as right. a professor? It, it, it was actually not taught in a class. It, one of the things neat about the project is that this is really informal education as opposed to being the structured education of a classroom situation, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is rather rigid, and you have to follow certain guidelines from day one to to the end. This, in an informal way, you can introduce items that students normally don't don't encounter. And and the protocol is really a NASA protocol that was then passed on to other uh, entities, like in this case to the Roxatix group that Mm -hmm, we were uh, mm -hmm. working with. And so they prevented, uh, provided us with the protocol. Uh, and so we had uh, templates to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to fill in the templates. Uh, uh, these gals here can give you more information about that. So, uh, Deborah, how were, how were these? How was this new tool, this new operations, the framework that you were using, um, coming down from NASA, helping you get something done that's this complex? It sounds like it might be a slightly different from what your average community college student might have to just worry about to get their assignments done. It was very intense, very, very intense. Um, Think of a PowerPoint that's 60 to 70 slides with all filled with very technical information. Mm -hmm. And um, everything is looked over down to the T. Every single component of your project is going to be nitpicked mercilessly (laughs) as you present this. And it's, it's such a great tool because if you're just in a classroom and you have to present Everyone's going to clap, and then you just stop, and the class is over. In this one, in this sort of protocol here, you present, they tell you everything that could possibly go wrong and everything that might pose a problem, and then you better fix it for the next one. And then this, yeah. uh, this uh, conference call that you're having is, is with, the, with the NASA folks? I mean, who's actually evaluating your delivery of, of whatever the, let's say, the milestone is? Um, we actually had the Roxat guys in Colorado. That's mm-hmm. right. That's, mm-hmm. that's correct. Yeah. And and in in terms of, uh, um, let's say you know you have Windward, you have Honolulu, you have Communi- uh, Kapiolani, and you have uh, Kauai Community College. Right. Those are the the four uh, yes. participants. And and you know this is I, I kind of look at it like it's uh it's it's uh, after school kind of thing. It's it's like uh, like a robotics kind of uh, activity where you have 
these teams that come together and they have to perform without the structure of a classroom. How do you motivate each other to stay true to the timeline? I mean, is it is it something that is just self-initiative or do you get on your teammates and say, you better get your act together or I'm booting you off this team? <laughs> Elena, what do you do? <laughs> That's very funny that you'd say that. <laughs> um, Why did you have to boot somebody? <laughs> <laughs> We've had some meetings where we're like, you guys, we have to get this done. Mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. um, a few of us um, in the in at least the WCC team were extremely self-motivated. And um, we made sure that we got all of our own components done. And then other people kind of saw time as more of a loose Thing and kind of like hanging out with yeah. the kids, probably the liberal yeah. arts majors. Yeah, <laughs> well, those journalists. <laughs> so we, but they, all of us. I think the best part was all of us were real big team players, and we actually um, got along with each other really well. So by the end of the day, like we could, it could have kind of been like, oh no, we're not like kind of getting all of our stuff done. By the end of the day, we ended up getting. All of our everything on our checklist was was finishing off all the important things. We made sure we made priorities. I think that's a big thing is that we have to see in the project what needs to be done and what can be done later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, what was true? The students really learned that a deadline is a deadline. <laughs> uh, very often in classes, it it kind of flexible and sometimes teachers will give them an extra day or two to finish the project. Right. I know a lot of students that rely on that sort of flexibility and right. they, when they come up against hard reality, it's tough. That's right. And some thought the deadline could be flexed in this case and it could not. And what was neat is they, they learned that if you pay up front, it's a, you get a better product than if you, you wait and then to try to correct later on. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I, I, have to be, uh, I have to let you know, that I was really proud of this. This program has been running for five years now. And in the five years, there are about seven teams on, in each group. So that's about 35 teams altogether. This is the first time that a team has ever completed all of the procedures for the June event so that we didn't have to bring back our payload after our test. Everybody had to bring their payloads back to do finished work before the August launch. Oh, I see. So there's a, there's multiple launches that you could send your payload up up in. Well, uh, over the past five years, the, um, uh, th- there's one launch per year, and it takes one year uh, uh, cycle to to get your payload ready. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so in June, you bring your payload, which is supposed to be ready for a test, uh, m- multiple tests. Uh, and they make sure that it can fit into the rocket. They make sure that it has the right weight. Uh, they make sure that when the rocket spins, it doesn't wobble. Draws the right voltage. Uh, right, yeah. right they, the right voltage. And some teams didn't meet these criteria. But when we were, and uh, Hanlu and Kapiolani and uh, Kauai, uh, Project Move was the first team in five years that met all the criteria on that, that uh, testing date. Well, excellent work. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I really want to get into this uh, idea of how do you motivate yourself when there is no grade that's going to be given as a result of this, uh, you know, this project. But when I hold that thought, we'll be right back after this uh, short break to continue our conversation with Josiadi, Elena Barber, and Deborah Pei uh, about Project Imua that just launched today. What are some of the things that their equipment was designed to do? And I want to learn more about a sounding rocket. Of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. The phone lines are open at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe.
You know, foreign investment is usually a good thing. Usually. These are foreign investors, these are money launderers, these are South American drug dealers hiding their money in London. And then sometimes it's not so good. I'm Kai Rizda, London Real Estate, next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Cultural anthropologist Mary Catherine Bateson is author of Composing a Further Life. Next time on New Dimensions, she'll be talking about aging, wisdom, and adulthood, too. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we are talking to Joe Ciotti, Elena Barber, and Deborah Pei about the on-schedule and fully successful Project Emua, building a payload and launching it on a rocket. And, of course, you can give us a call here if you have a question or comment. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. You know, right before the break, we were talking about motivation, getting the team to perform, staying on schedule, and and really performing to a level that meets the requirement of something that, you know, when you start to launch a rocket, I mean, it's you got to meet a lot of hard deadlines. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about how sometimes a class can be a little flexible, you know, there's elasticity around the due dates. But when you have a project like this, which isn't really part of a classroom, there's no grade that perhaps is going to be given to you as a as a participant in in this um, delivery. It, was there something special or something that you have to you know dig deep into yourself that gets you to perform to that level? And I, I would venture to say, because I do teach a class at Windward, that not all students are going to be that conscientious. Yeah, I think that the students that signed on to this project and decided to stay on, we really understood that we all wanted to be part of this this amazing thing happening with UH, trying to, you know, pull all these community colleges together to promote STEM. And when we finally got this project moving and we met all our teammates and we saw what we were doing, you don't want to let anybody down. Mm-hmm. You know that if you slip up, if you, you know, get too relaxed – this whole thing can just fall down because of you, <laughs> you know? You don't want to be the person that causes the whole thing to fall down. So. Would that go up on Facebook or something? Like, would people call <laughs> you out? <laughs> <laughs> I think, we you know, you, <laughs> I know. Suddenly, you know, everybody across the community college just, you know, suddenly hates you. <laughs> well, h- how about you, Elena? I mean, what, what was that driving force, apart from perhaps being humiliated or mocked widely? Like, for example, you already saw a launch. You kind of had to be egged into watching your actual launch this morning. <laughs> so I'm, I'm real curious as far as getting the work done for the actual project. Uh, what, what was it that kept you going? Um, I did it for the fame. 
Well, the main mission was uh, a UV spectrometer mm-hmm. because we wanted to get above the atmosphere and um, see what the spectrum was like before some of the um, waves got absorbed by the atmosphere so that there could be an examination of the difference in what was being absorbed by the atmosphere. So your experiment was uh, a payload that was what, kind of dimensionally, was maybe a, a, a foot cube? Was it, was it, it was that big? or smaller. I think smaller? it was going to be... It was 8 inches by 8 inches and 5 inches tall. And then um, this was a payload that was uh, in a a compartment that was shared by other experiments, correct? Yes, yes. And and if it's testing the UV, it's a spectrometer, does it need to see the atmosphere or is it all right to be confined in a metal container? Oh, well, it opened up the the area where the rocket... Was where the payloads oh, were. Oh, okay, okay. It opened and it just, up, what, yeah. it, it just spewed all those payloads? <laughs> <out>. <laughs> well, it didn't shoot them out. <laughs> uh, what actually happens is, I'm not sure what the timing is during the flight, but the rocket will shuck its outer shell. Uh-huh. And so all of the payloads are, are exposed. And in our particular experiment, we had this little beveled edge that it's like, you know, you have all the corners and you have this little soft one that we had the cosine receptor that would actually receive all of the spec, like the spectral data. And we just like kind of put it in there. We had to make sure that it was sealed and everything. But it was like, so it was like this little eye that we oh. had. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Now now you're getting me interested. In, and so now the, the rocket has shed its, its outer protection. Your payload is out there exposed in the atmosphere it probably has to come down <laughs> <laughs> it does it lands in the ocean and so when uh, is it is it um uh parachuting down or is it just coming down like it, a big rock it just comes down like a like a big rock, I think. <laughs> does no. it have a parachute? No, it does it have, have a parachute. A parachute. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't want it to crash into the ocean. <laughs> yeah. it, it, so, so obviously you guys didn't design the parachute system. <laughs> That's right. The parachute is designed by, by uh, the NASA flight center. So were, were each, was each payload uh, has its own parachute or did all the payloads uh, you know, be contained within the one parachute recovery system they're all contained in the one oh, parachute okay, 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 so they're okay, all okay. they're all firmly firmly attached to that rocket and the oh now i understand is that the top half comes off and the parachute opens up and mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it floats gently to the sea now okay, did any okay, of these yes. schools with payloads <laughs> attach gopros to their payloads because i would yeah, have liked to see this they did oh okay there is there is one team oh well, of course there was one team from costa rica that they had about they had, or Port, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, I'm sorry. And they had about, I don't know if it was theirs, where they had like, one of them had one GoPro and another one had like four. Oh, that see. just like extended out. It was really so, amazing to see we'll everyone to else's experiments. Yeah. yeah. So now the, rock, the rocket launched this morning and I would imagine well ago has now the payloads returned to Earth. So, uh, Deborah, did you did your team retrieve their payload and look at the data that it collected? Well, the payload's been retrieved and cleaned up and examined, and um, we actually have all the data from ours uploaded um, into our little online Dropbox that we've mm-hmm, been using the mm-hmm, whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't yet 
done the analysis, but we're going to be meeting together to an- analyze all this data. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, uh, <clears throat> was the was the data being transmitted or was it just being collected and then you had to retrieve it from the payload to then input it into your system? Actually, both. Oh, yeah? Um, we had, because we wanted redundancies just in case one went down. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. One was the telemetry. So part of our power and signal conditioning board that we created was to condition the signals to be the right format to be sent down um, into the rocket's telemetry lines. Those are lines that beam down the data. Oh, okay. And so we have, but we don't have much control over that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, isn't everybody yeah. else using those same telemetry lines? How do you differentiate from your data stream from the guys from Puerto Rico? Oh, we had all those sorted out. There's so many different pins that are available uh-huh, uh-huh. that we can hook up to, and each... Um, team was assigned certain pins that we could use for telemetry. Mm-hmm. So we used our assigned pins, and each team uses their assigned pins. Oh, great, great. I see. So, uh, Elena, um, are you part of that analysis side, or is that now another team that takes a look at that data? I mean, are you all were you all primarily involved in getting the payload into space? And is there an equal amount of collaboration to now interpret the data that was collected? For interpreting the data, I think it's mainly COECC. We will be very happy when we find out what the data gives us. And, um, but yeah, it's mostly Kuwait ECC. They have the program, programmer who actually programmed a, um, program (laughs) 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 that interpreted all of the data that we're going to be getting. And actually, I got an email from them today saying that they're going to be coordinating with our, kind of our liaison from Colorado, Mm -hmm. um, consortium to make sure to see where we're pointed, like because they're going to know at what time of the flight where the rocket is, and we're going to be able to coordinate with them to see where we're pointed at the sun. Now, the yep. data that you're collecting, you're doing some UV uh, spectrometry, and is this data something that hasn't been collected before? Are you filling a gap that was you know, sort of uh, empty for a long time? Well, the reason that we went, we decided to do this experiment is because there's very, very little data for it. And there's like, you could count on one hand how many data, um, yeah, like data sets, yeah, sets uh-huh. that we've, that can actually be recorded. And it was all very like all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. what is, what's really going on? So we just wanted to be a part of that and continue to give more information. Yeah. So, Joe, this was a successful launch with a successful team that met all of their milestones, and there's still work to be done on the analysis of the data. But I am curious about, you said it's a, uh, how long the project span was. I mean, what's next? Oh, we, we it's a two-year program. Right. And so next year, we've already, uh, the executive directors have come together. We have decided that we're going to do a uh, three-package payload. One of the uh, payload experiments uh, will be a scientific package, which is a, a neutron detector, a neutron and a gamma ray detector. Uh, the second one is a really exciting one because it's really innovative. Uh, this is a package that Winver is putting together, and it's called a sublimation rocket. Uh, if you can imagine that if you take a substance like dry ice as an example, as an example of something that sublimes, it, it will turn from a solid to a gas. And what you do is then you take the gas and you direct it out through a nozzle. And so we are going to be designing a rocket that's based not on chemical fuel but sub- sublimation. Mm-hmm. And so that, that one will actually be uh, ejected from the payload. That one oh. will not be recovered, that particular um, 
and, and oh, well, I, I definitely want to follow that one when, yeah. uh, when it when it starts to uh, uh, sort of get uh, more formed up. Now, I want to hear a little bit about what what's in store for your futures. I mean, are you going into engineering? Are you looking at UH Manoa? Are you looking at you know other four year institutions? What's what's in the future for you, young ladies? Um, I'm transferring into Manoa this mm-hmm. fall, so starting up here, you know, pretty soon. Um, I'm continuing on. Um, to get my mechanical engineering degree. Great, great. Mm-hmm. Ah, fantastic. And uh, uh, how about you, Elena? I'm also transferring to Manoa in the fall, and I will be going to a computer engineering degree. Now, yeah. where, um, if you had the, the choice of jobs, where would you like to work? Oh, Google. <laughs> that was like my that was like my big dream in the sky. But I, like I also it. I also want to work for myself, which is why I wanted to go wanted to go into oh, those computer are two engineering. Very very polar I know opposites. very very different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. wanted the free food kind of got me with the Google. One. Uh, yeah, there's, there's bicycles. <laughs> my coworkers just went to visit the campus. They love all the perks. Uh, Deborah, how about you? Your dream job? Um, I actually want to continue in this sort of work and um, go into satellites. Um, I know I heard some rumors that Elon Musk, the mm-hmm. SpaceX dude, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to plan a new satellite facility in the Seattle area. And I'm hoping that it's up and running by the time That's I graduate because I'm good. really looking to get into that. All right. Sure. And actually, Elena, yeah. Google's trying to get into space, too. So I think there's a lot of overlap yeah, yeah, here. Right. And, and, uh, and Joe, I mean, how are you going to recruit uh, more students if these, these great students are kind of moving on? Well, these students have uh, led the way with their pioneering work and their successful launch today. Um, I think it's going to be a, an easy job. It's going to be more uh, selecting uh, the students that will come into the, the next level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as as they were saying, uh, Google is an, an excellent place to go because they are launching uh, rockets into space. So mm-hmm. uh, if somebody wanted to find more information about this project and future projects, where's the best place oh, for them uh, to go? What you would want to do is either contact Hawaii Space Grant Consortium okay. or each of the different campuses, Windward Community College, Kauai Community College, Kapilani Community College, or Honolulu Community College. Sounds great. And we'll link that on our show notes. Of course, Joe Ciotti is the professor of physics, astronomy, and mathematics over at Windward Community College. Elena Barber is at Windward Community College, and Deborah Pei is at Honolulu CC. And, of course, uh, they're all part of the Project Imua team, and we want to thank you all for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure being here. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll find out about students from UH who participated in the National Maker Fair. Wow. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovit. And we leave you with our... Our song pick of the week here's a band called Death Cab for Cutie and a song called Little Wanderer. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Little wanderer,